Hi, my name is Thomas Supernot, makeup artist from Star Trek, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and two of the Star Trek films. And I'm here to talk about my career on Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. You may be surprised to hear this, but can you guess which episode of this series has been the most popular so far? Would you believe it's not any of the celebrity actors we've spoken to, it's actually Michael Moore, one of the prop makers for Star Trek. There are other episodes creeping up behind him in terms of popularity, but as of now, it's the man who crafted the phasers, tricorders, and other tech and objects you see in every episode and in a bunch of the Star Trek movies. There's a real thirst for behind-the-scenes info about Trek, the real deep, nitty-gritty kind of stuff, and that's why I'm very excited to have today's guest joining us. On this episode, we're speaking with Thomas E. Supernant, who spent about 15 minutes with me after we recorded the episode, coaching me on how to say his last name. Despite all that coaching, I'm pretty sure I still bombed it, but hey, Thomas, thanks for trying. Thomas is a makeup artist, specifically working in special effects, but also having done some beauty work throughout his career, who's worked on Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and two of the Star Trek TNG films, Generations and First Contact. Thomas was part of the team led by Michael Westmore that won the Emmy in 1995 for the Deep Space Nine episode Distant Voices, and the same team was nominated again a year later for that beloved episode, The Visitor. He's one of the people responsible for giving faces to numerous aliens in the franchise, and today he tells us a little bit about working on Trek, as well as some of the other films and TV shows that he's been a part of. Now, much like that conversation I had with Michael Moore a few months back, I know practically nothing about makeup, and even less about special effects makeup. So if you're an inquiring mind like me who wants to know more about this field, you're about to get a really great education over the course of the next 90 minutes or so. So stick around, there's a lot of really great stories and a lot of good tips in this one. Before we jump into our interview, I want to remind everyone to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And that's all one word, no spaces. You can also support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you want to check out some of our merch and put Trek Untold on a shirt, hoodie, mug, sticker, or something else, head on over to teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to proudly display how much you like this podcast. And if you do happen to get some Trek Untold merch, go ahead and tag us on social media and let us know you got it. We'd love to see it. But most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and to leave a rating and a review. There is a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, as I'm sure you already know, and leaving ratings and reviews helps people find us when they're searching for these types of shows. If you're already following us or offering your support in whatever way you can, be it a follow, review, monetarily, or even just listening today, thank you for the help. There's a family of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we appreciate you joining us here each and every week on the show. I'd also like to make a quick shout-out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D-printed Star Trek-inspired products for toys and people. But you'll hear more about them a little bit later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. 
All right, and welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the other side of the line, we've got a makeup artist who's been working for more than three decades. He has been nominated for three Emmys, and he's won twice, including for Star Trek. And he's also been part of two Academy Award-winning makeup crews. He's received Makeup Artists and Hairstylist Guild Awards. He's worked on so many movies and so many TV shows from all the way back into the 90s to today. Today we're speaking with Thomas Supernon. Thomas, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm hoping I said your last name right still, because I was having problems before. I'm hoping I got it this time around. It sounded good. All right, we'll go, we'll go with that. So <laughs> thanks so much for joining us here today. You know, it's our first time speaking to anybody in the makeup department, and that's a department I don't really know much about. I don't really know much of how it functions within the rest of the production. So, uh, you know, I understand what it is, but how it works all the departments and all the little bits and pieces of how you guys work. That's something I don't know, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners are just as curious as I'm going to be today. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on board to enlighten us on what it is a Star Trek makeup person does. Okay, well, you know, I have to give a shout out to my boss uh, from the show, Michael Westmore. Um, uh, Mike uh, uh, is, is, you know, uh, an Academy Award-winning makeup artist, um, countless Emmys. Um, my granddad worked with him on Capricorn One. Anyway, he was our designer supervisor and basically you know he he was the one who made sure everything fell into place uh from you know uh, the designs of the makeups and the characters uh from beauty all the way to you know bizarre aliens to you know hiring you know the appropriate people to do the appropriate things um and and you know just try to keep you know everything running and it was no easy task i i don't think people really understand the gravity of his position um I, you know uh when we're uh, uh when i came into the trek world uh it was um oh gosh uh uh the sixth season of next gen i think and the second season of ds9 so he had two shows he was designing um and um as as things progressed uh, you know like uh, uh on this uh, when we were doing like the third season of DS9 and the seventh season and final season of uh, Next Gen, um, we also ushered in the Next Gen movie generation. So he was designing and, and supervising three shows, two television shows and a major motion picture. And it was the first motion picture of Star Trek with the new Next Generation crew. Um, and, and, he he worked his butt off. I mean, people. I once again, I don't think people realize how hard that man worked. Um, well, he's going to come up a lot today for sure because I've got plenty of questions asked about him, his involvement as well. Uh, you yeah. know, he, he's got he gets kind of lost in the mix, even though he was such a big part of what Star Trek is. I, I do think he, his name kind of is not always in the big conversations. Yeah, and and it should be because you know you know with with everyone else you know and their departments and stuff. You know, uh, you know, everyone had a huge workload. It was, it was, you know, a, a, a very big show to to run weekly, um, and and uh, you know the shooting schedules and everything had to be done and created, um, uh, you know, and and I mean we, oh gosh, like we would be in the middle of an episode, and and we'd, you know, also be working on aliens for the next episode and. Sometimes we'd get a reprieve, you know, and, and it would be like a light show and it would be some background aliens or some Bajorans on DS9. You know, it, it wasn't that bad. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, there was 
a huge amount of people working on the show for heavy alien days. Um, and we would have whole sound stages dedicated to makeup artists. And if it was a big, sh- uh, you know, a big alien show on, um, Voyager or, um, uh, next gen and DS nine, um, we'd have two sound stages, uh, plus the upstairs lab, as we called it, um, you know, filled with makeup artists, um, you know, doing, doing aliens. So we're going to talk a whole ton about that, but before we get into your time with Star Trek, I want to discuss what you did before you got there. Cause you've had oh. quite a journey to get yourself to there. So I want to start this off by asking the same question. We start all these interviews with, and that is Thomas, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Uh, my earliest memory of Star Trek, um, watching it in reruns um, when I was a small child. I mean, I hadn't, you know, been to kindergarten yet, so I, four years old maybe, um, and just loving the show and it, you know, just, um, you know, lying on the floor, you know, in 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 the house in Burbank, California, watching it on one of those old television sets, and it just. It it was it was like my weekly you know treat. I loved watching it, um, and then um, you know th- throughout my life, it's just been a huge part of my life. And uh, um, it's one of the one of the odd things about Star Trek was um, when I was an early teen, this one teacher I had, I was I ended up moving to the Midwest uh, because of family or whatever. Um, and I was in the middle of nowhere. And this one teacher was like, you know, I have a friend who's really into that Star Wars thing. Well, come to find out it was Star, uh, Star Trek. Yeah, big difference and, there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so she introduced me to this uh, fellow teacher, friend of hers, Phyllis Sutter. And um, she, she would have like viewing parties and stuff. And she had two kids my age. And you know, we'd all hang out and, you know, have like, you know, barbecue and whatever and watch Star Trek. And, um, and she had them all on VHS and, and, and this was like early eighties. And, uh, um, she ended up getting involved with the Star Trek convention circuit and kind of managing appearances for, uh, DeForest Kelly and James, uh, Dewan. And I got to meet them, I, you know, and Susan Sackett and, you know, the original, you know, cast. And it was really amazing. And, and, uh, you know, I, back then I was inspired, you know, I wanted to do makeup. So, um, you know, I did like a, a Klingon forehead, you know, like built a costume, you know, this was before the term cosplay and, and, uh, entered a costume contest and, and yeah, it was, it was great, you know, kind of having a little in to, you know, that world of Star Trek and meeting, you know, Star Trek actors. Now, I'm just curious, how old were you about when you made that first makeup with, of the Klingon, and what did you do to make it? Oh, God. <laughs> um, let's see. I was 14, maybe-ish, 14, um, uh, and, and um, possibly 15. But no, I think I was, I was 14. Yeah, I was 14, and uh, I, I sculpted it. Now, this is... Star Trek motion picture Klingon. So it, it was really that pronounced spine that went down the nose. And so I built, uh, you know, sculpted it. I did a plaster Paris mold and poured it up in latex, just regular mask making latex and, um, um, attached it to a bald cap. And, uh, my hair was longer than, you know, um, that's, that was kind of the trend back then. And, and so I, I, I took crepe wool and, you know, glued it down with like 
rubber cement and, um, you know, painted it all up and then, you know, applied it to myself and, uh, glued it down with spirit gum and, and, um, uh, added eyebrows and, and, uh, um, painted my teeth yellow, you know, with the, <laughs> the tooth enamels. And, uh, yeah, I, I think I came in like third place or something, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was really cool. So as a 14 year old, I would have understood none of what you just said. How did you learn all these things? <laughs> well, um, most of my family has worked in the film industry, uh, my immediate family, I should say. And, uh, um, I, uh, right around that time I, I saw an American werewolf in London and that really was like, okay, I want to do, and I watched anything and read anything about, you know, special makeup effects. And, um, I started making phone calls. My grandfather introduced me to people. Um, um, and, and the Westmores were like a household name because my granddad worked with a lot of them. Um, um, like Frank Westmore and, and, um, uh, Wally Westmore and, and, you know, like, it, you know, that was the old studio days when like certain things would cross over into other departments. So like my grandfather worked in the paint department. And so anytime, like, like people needed like to be basically airbrushed, like air, air gun, like painted bodies and stuff. Um, that was something the paint department would come into under the supervision, uh, supervision of the makeup department. And anyway, so, um, you know, I, I got introduced to a lot of people and, and they were like, well, you know, go, go here and buy this. And, you know, um, you know, just kind of, I, I just kind of figured it out from, you know, instructions and, you know, that, that were given to me verbally. And, and there wasn't a lot of good information back then, but I, I absorbed what I could. And there was a couple, you know, good books actually. Um, uh, and, and so I kind of got an idea of what I was doing. And, um, an uncle of mine uh, actually was, um, worked in uh, something called the staff shop and they, they did molds. And so he, he, you know, taught me how to do molds and, and things like that. So that, that was kind of like, you know, um, luckily I had that family kind of Thing going on yeah now what did your parents do since they're working in the industry as well um uh well uh my mother had a wig shop and and she was a wig maker and she she did wigs and um uh my father wasn't in the industry and um i i lost him early in my life so that was like one of those things so you know i, I really didn't get to you know know him um but um my my um like I said, my grandfather was a huge influence, um, you know, just uh, because he, he'd been in for so long and, and, you know, it just, it was, it was just part of the family. Like, yeah, it, it was, it was really odd. Um, the whole like being starstruck and all that, it just wasn't a thing because it was just what your family did. Mm. And, um, you know, back in the day, <laughs> now I sound like an old man, but back <laughs> in the day, um, growing up in Burbank and like the late sixties and early seventies, um, everybody knew everybody. It was a very small town considering it was a big town, you know, and, and, you know, back then people either worked in the film industry, um, at a local shop, um, or at Lockheed. And, and, um, so like when you went to school, like, you know, half of your friends, their family, you know, worked in accounting for the studios or they were 
stunt people in the, you know, in the film industry or whatever, you know, you, you just, it was just kind of commonplace back then. So where did you go to then pursue this as your full-time living? Did you go to school to learn more about this? Uh, well, um, once again, there wasn't a lot that, you know, back then and, and there wasn't a lot that I knew of back then. Like, and, and, and so I just kind of taught myself mostly, um, I would talk to different people, you know, in the industry and they would tell me, you know, this is a product here and this is a product there and this is used for that. And, and, um, I, I used to make phone calls, you know, like I, you know, it's pre-internet and, um, way (laughs) pre-internet. And, and, um, I remember calling Charlie Schramm, you know, who, uh, had a company called Windsor Hill. And Charlie Schramm worked on the uh, uh, the Wizard of Oz. Um, he was one of the granddaddies of makeup, and um, he ha- he sold foam latex. And I bought a foam latex kit from him. And also, like the different chemical companies, like there was a company called R and D Latex, and they were really helpful. I you could call them, and they would get a tech person on with you, and they would walk you through stuff and give you suggestions and ideas and um, uh, and then like the, there was one beauty supply, uh, ran by, uh, uh, this fellow by the name of Namey and it was friends beauty supply and it was on the corner of Magnolia and Laurel Canyon. And it was a tiny little place, but Namey knew everything and everybody. And, and he, you know, I would go in and, you know, buy latex or whatever, you know, and, and he's like, you know, here's, here's this product here. And he would give me a, you know, like a sample kit of something. And, and he's like, you know, try this out. So, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I started making a logbook of, of all the different companies and, and, uh, you know, talking to their tech people and, and it was really helpful. Um, and it was really accessible back then, um, which is odd. I mean, it was just, I, I think it was just, you know, being personal and speaking to a person instead of, you know, just an email. You're doing this all on your own. You're basically writing your own Bible, if you will, to how to do this kind of stuff. How did you get your first professional gig doing this? Oh gosh. Um, Hmm. Well, um, I had this friend, uh, who, who, um, has since passed away, uh, Tony Ruprecht and Tony had so much faith in me. He, he wasn't much older than me, just a few years older, but he was already working. And um, he did a lot of, um, he was kind of known for his mechanical effects and stuff. And, uh, he was just super, I mean, he was really well-rounded. He, he was great at everything he did. And, uh, um, he let me know about this, this job in, you know, like opening and, and like it set me up for an interview. And, and I went and interviewed with Kenny Myers for return of the living dead too. And, um, I, I went up and uh, with a buddy who interviewed as well and I, I got the job and, and, uh, it was all lab work and, uh, I learned so much in the few weeks that I worked on, on that. I mean, stuff that I didn't really know, like, you know, it was like some really cool techniques. Um, and, um, that was my first professional gig. Now, were you purely doing like special effects makeup or were you doing also kind of, I guess, uh, beauty makeup as well? Well, on the side, it was doing beauty makeup. Um, there, um, there was this one and I, it, it really bothers me. I can't remember his name, but there, uh, the, the, uh, department head for universal studios, uh, way back when, um, they had a, 
legitimate like makeup department and it was still like the studio system um and um really nice fellow and he always took time to show me things and talk to me about you know makeup and and he told me to learn everything i can like learn hair learn this learn that and 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 he said you know honestly um you know because i was like oh rick baker rick baker you know like so many kids who were into this were at that time you know and he's like well you know the reality is you know you need to know everything you need to know beauty makeup historical makeup you need to know how to make beards and lay beards and mustaches and and um you know because that's going to be your bread and butter like you know like you know rick baker you know is is a phenomenon it's not not everyone can you know, just make monsters and stuff, you know, your career is going to be more than monsters. And, and, um, you know, I took that to heart. Also a friend of my grandfather, um, uh, was a gentleman by the name of Chris Mueller Jr. He, uh, he sculpted all the original stuff, uh, for, uh, the Disney theme parks, like, uh, the pirates and, and stuff like that. He was the chief in charge of all that. And, uh, he also sculpted the uh, creature from the Black Lagoon costume. Oh, wow. So um, he was actually, prior to the film industry, like a legitimate, like formal artist and, and sculptor. And he kind of put me straight on on some stuff. I brought some stuff in to show him. And he was like, what is this? And I'm like, well, this is a mummy and this is this monster and whatever. And he's like, it's ugly. And and I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, and, and he was he, that old timey like grumpy grouchy you know he but it 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 sunk in he's like i I, the next time i you know see any of your work i want to see you sculpt like a man's face like like a bust or a a, you know a a woman or a a child you know better yet sculpt a baby you know and and i'm like whoa and he's like we all know what they look like and and if you can make it look real then you know you've accomplished you know what what you you've set out to do as a sculptor you know it's like and and then he explained that it will help me make believable monsters you know it's like you you know you could just sculpt anything and call it a monster and throw blood on it but the 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 more you know about anatomy and you know you know the way you know um everything works like all the different structures underneath flesh and and things like that you know it's just the mechanics of of movement and, and things, uh, it, it, it really kind of like those, those couple comments really, you know, sunk in and, and hit home. And I was like, okay. So I ended up, I did go to cosmetology school because, the one gentleman said, you know, learn everything, you know? And, and so I, I thought maybe the cosmetology school would be a good thing. And it did. It, it taught me about skin. It taught me about skin care. It taught me about, um, hygiene for skin and for yourself as a a professional you know and which you know that's that leads into another story of you know some makeup people i've seen who know nothing about like kit sanitation and and uh you know like that procedure right there you know especially in the day and age we're living in right now (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) you know it's 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 very important not to contaminate your your makeup you know and and uh it just so that gave me a really good foundation on, you know, how to present myself and how to go about, you know, setting things up and, and all that. 
you know, just hearing about your beginnings and this early part of your career, it's really a testament to the power of saying yes to things because you know, you're know doing all these cold calls and these folks you call, they could have just said, no, go away, kid, you bother me. But they actually took the time to really teach you things and give you so much information. And uh, that's, that's just really amazing. I feel like that's something you don't really hear about as much today. Yeah. I, you know, it was a really friendly atmosphere. I, I, I wrote an article a while ago for um, Neil Gorton, who's a dear friend of mine in, in the UK who did Doctor Who and, and a bunch of other stuff. I, I mean, the guy's amazing. He, his career goes way back as well. Um, and, uh, but he, um, asked me to write this article and it, and it was basically about, you know, what we're talking about now, like kind of the roots of things and like, you know, like the eighties, you know, it, it was a huge time for effects makeup. And, um, I mean, it was, it, you know, we were all really young and experimenting and dealing directly with chemical companies that made urethanes and, um, elastomers and foams and, and all sorts of, you know, magical, um, it, you know, like magical, like concoctions. And, and the funny thing is like, now you can just go and buy this stuff. There are shops designated, you know, just for effects makeup and, and, uh, you know, oh gosh, I, I, there's a, a ton of different places, um, effects warehouse, in Philadelphia, motion picture effects company, most beauty supplies, big Hollywood beauty supplies have an effects division where you could go in and say, I need foam latex. I need an eight pound, um, polyurethane foam and, uh, some, um, uh, some epoxy or whatever. And, and they have it. And before then it was like, uh, um, there was one wonderful lady, um, Sandra Berman, who, who, um, had a shop and she, was the first to introduce uh, effects materials back in the eighties, um, you know, to, to, to the public. So at this point now, I want to jump into a little bit of your early career before we get to Trek, talk about some things you did before Trek, a few things you did after Trek. And I want to start things off with one of the things that I like the most that you did that I can off the top of my head recognize. And that's Buffy the Vampire Slayer from 1992. Uh, so what oh. did you do on Buffy? Wow. Um, that was, oh God, that was, that was um, a really, you know, it's weird that you'd bring it up. Uh, it, it, what is it now? The 30th anniversary? Just or? about. I mean, yeah, this, it's just about close to 30th, right? I'm, I'm bad at math, but it sounds about right to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, the funny thing is, um, I, I just watched it last week. I haven't watched it in a while. And, and uh, people were posting a bunch of stuff about it recently on social media. And, and I thought, oh, you know, why not revisit? And Boy, I didn't realize it was going to make me so emotional. Um, we lost so many wonderful people uh, from that uh, film. And uh, it just, wow. Uh, and it brought back so many good memories, too. And, and like, we had so much fun uh, considering the amount of work that went into it and how many nights we shot. Uh, I got a call from a friend of mine, Michelle Bueller, who, you know, I have to give, you know, props to because she always had faith in me, too. She was one of the, people who early, early on in my career, um, you know, just like my skills, uh, liked me as a person, um, and wanted to work with me and, and kept me working. And, and I really appreciate that, you know, um, uh, she, she was an amazing lady, uh, to work with. Um, I haven't, I haven't worked with her in forever, but I think the last thing was it's always sunny in Philadelphia. But anyway, um, I, I, uh, I got a call from her to come in and I, I'm like Buffy the vampire slayer, like everyone, you know, back oh, then, yeah. <laughs> like 
you heard that, you were like, what the hell? You know, and, and I had the same reaction to another film many years later. Um, I got a call from Drew Barrymore about Donnie Darko. And I'm like, Donnie Darko. And anyway, so <laughs> Buffy, um, I go and uh, my first night um, was just kind of like hanging out. Um, uh, and it was the graveyard scene where Buffy, uh, you know, first gets her cramps <laughs> and, and the, the, uh, two, um, vampires, um, come up from their graves and attack her. And, you know, it was, it, it was kind of a big deal because, you know, uh, Donald Sutherland's there and it's like, he has his own personal makeup artist, you know, and it's Donald Sutherland for goodness sakes, you know? And <laughs> anyway, and I met Christy, um, who was just a doll. I mean, she was, she was totally just, you know, such a personality and, 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 uh, um, it, it, it was, yeah, it was a really slow night. You know, it was basically, you know, vampires and, and things, <laughs> you know, just, it was, it, you know, minimal like bump in the night. Yeah. And, and, you know, we had pizza, uh, <laughs> pizza and vampires, Hollywood. Yeah. It, it was, yeah. Uh, Michelle's ex-husband, um, uh, brought like some pizzas, uh, from this really nice Italian restaurant. Anyway. So <laughs> we were sitting like in this, in Griffith park, you know, with this cemetery set built outside, um, you know, uh, and at night eating pizza with vampires, but yeah, it was, <laughs> it was crazy. Um, and then, um, it just, that show, we shot so much footage. I want to put this out there. So if anyone, you know, you know, hears this and I put this out there before, uh, <laughs> hopefully somebody gets on it, but we shot so much footage, like, it would have been a darker movie and, and a little more intense movie. There was a ton of dream sequences where Buffy meets Lothos, uh, Richter Hauer. Um, and, uh, it, it, it just, you know, there was so, so much more meat, so to speak. Um, and, and they edited all that out. And it's sad because I think the Buffy fans, the diehard fans would love, love, love to see that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just, it, it was, it was so much fun. Like we would also cook, um, it, it was, it was, it was a different time, but like we would cook in either Rutgers trailer or Paul Rubin's, uh, trailer. Uh, I mean, we had a cater, I mean, it was a feature film, but like Michelle was like, Oh, the catered food <laughs> and she's, she's part French and lived in France for a while. And so she, she was very particular about things. And most everyone was like, ugh, catered food. Anyway, so um uh so different people would take turns cooking and and I remember like, you know, bringing stuff in and we'd be sitting around in the actors trailer, like Tony Basil was there and then and like um Richter and um Richter's assistant and Paul and it would just be all sitting around uh, with the makeup crew. It's very intimate, you know, and sometimes somebody from wardrobe would be there and, and, uh, um, we'd have a bottle of wine and we'd all have like, you know, glass of wine with, you know, very urbane, you know, and, and, um, the nights were long. I mean, we would start before sunset getting everyone in makeup and then we would shoot all night until sunup. And it was like, uh, and you felt like a vampire, you know, um, <laughs> there was just so many funny little things that happened on the show. Um, Oh my gosh. I, I mean, that, 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 this would be a completely, you know, a, a, you know, like a three hour interview just on Buffy. I mean, the, the amount of stuff that, that happened on that show and 
And uh, yeah, it was just, it was so much fun. And uh, the, the last week of shooting was seven days. We shot seven days straight. Um, and uh, um, we were all making really good money uh, because of overtime and things. Oh, yeah. And I remember the last, I think it was the last day um, or the second of the last day. No, it was the last day. Um, I ended up, uh, we were down in Santa Monica and I ended up calling the Broadway deli. I think it was. And I ordered like all the champagne and caviar and like creme fraiche and bread and different things and like nibbly things like, you know, like, you know, just a bunch of plates of nibbly things and, and olives and whatnot anyway. And I set up in, in this one room, uh, at the stage and it was kind of like, you know, a little thing come by grab some champagne it was like my thank you it was my big like ah. true gift or whatever and um it, yeah it just it was like that you know like there was these um uh letterman jackets from the movie and Richter Hauer bought the entire crew a letterman's jacket and oh, it was wow. you know, i still have mine it's it's purple and like cream and uh, with like a uh red satin lining and uh oh, now you gotta put a picture of that up on instagram so we can all see that yeah <laughs> yeah it just it, it was you know it meant so much and then like luke perry like the first night i met luke um i didn't realize who he was i mean i i never watched 90210 but um <laughs> you know i'm a sci-fi horror person yeah, I'm like, same here. I, you know it's just, so i didn't i i didn't know who he was and i thought he actually was one of the stuntmen and he said something <laughs> kind of snarky and i like i i said something back to him kind of snarky and we won't get into it but i you know i i i was just like oh you smart ass you know and anyway so uh, uh when he left the trailer our hairstylist barbara um she's like oh my god do you know who that was and i'm like i don't know one of the stunt guys and she's like oh that's luke perry he's like our lead actor and i'm like oh and she's like I think maybe you should apologize to him or like, you know, clear up. Like, and I'm like, Oh dear. Well, later on that night, you know, I'm touching Luke up and, uh, you know, we're waiting out rain because it was pouring down. Uh, we had like this crazy, um, about, you know, like bout of rain, uh, while we were shooting. And, uh, so we're at Disney ranch and we're under like a tent waiting for the rain to stop. And, um, I, I kind of pulled Luke off to the side and said, Hey, I hope I didn't insult you, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, you really didn't know who I was? I'm like, no, I'm sorry. And he's like, no, that's cool. <laughs> and then after that, like him and I were buds. And like, it, it, it was weird because like we kept missing each other on different shows. And, you know, I would have makeup people randomly go, uh, uh, Luke, Luke says to say hi. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, this many years later, you know, and, um, it's just such it's such a shame we lost him because there was no one no one nicer no one kinder no one more professional i mean he was just absolutely the best guy you could ever ever work with now you mentioned before you also worked on donnie darko uh, i'm curious what you yes. did for that movie um uh frank the bunny's makeup uh, uh -huh. when he takes off his bunny head um i'm the guy who shot his eye out <laughs> oh okay yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about that too because i know like a lot of what you have done is horror films in particular so i'm curious you know how often you're called in to make a monster type character or, or an alien character versus just doing like what you did on donnie darko making a person look either dead or mangled up oh gosh well you know um most uh well the fun <laughs> okay let's let's bounce back to buffy I, when i got hired i didn't get hired to do effects makeup on it even though i ended up doing 
effects makeup. Um, I, I, I did Hillary Swank's makeup and Paris, uh, Paris Vaughn and Michelle Abrams makeup, uh, Buffy's friends. And, um, you know, the random guy, uh, Ben Affleck, you know, I, I had to, you know, you know, make him look sweaty when he was playing basketball, you know, it's like, um, except his nose, his nose had to be powdered, but like, you know, everything else had to be sweaty, um, movie, movie sweat anyway. Um, but, (laughs) um, most of my career actually honestly has been beauty makeup, but it seems like I've done more effects makeup. Um, but then again, I don't know, maybe it's half and half, but, um, I, most of the jobs that I've got hired for, it seems like uh, have been like kind of boring beauty. Um, except like on Star Trek where I did, you know, prosthetics and sideburns and, you know, like, um, like some female aliens that needed to look beautiful and alien. But, um, yeah, um, it's, yeah, it's, I guess it's about 50, 50. Um, but, um, the, the, how I got Donnie Darko was, uh, I just, I knew Drew Barrymore and she, she called me, um, uh, and asked if I had help out on this little film she was doing. And, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, sure. And she told me what was required. And I was like, yeah, that's easy. So, you know, um, uh, tied an eyebrow and, and sculpted a, um, a prosthetic and molded it and ran it and made my way to Santa Monica where they were shooting, um, for the reveal scene. And, um, yeah. And and then I met this wonderful, wonderful actor by the name of James Duvall. And, and since then, Jimmy and I have become, you know, really good friends. And he's one of the, once again, one of the nicest people you'd ever want to work with and, uh, just a joy to work with and, and funny, funny as hell. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, we, we actually had to walk from the, makeup trailer up um i forgot montana or, or uh, montana a- avenue or whatever in santa monica to the uh movie theater where we were filming at and there was these two older women who were walking and kind of talking to themselves and you know here's jimmy and i walking up and he's in his bunny costume holding his bunny head with his eye shot out <laughs> and the two ladies look up and see him and they like quickly di- divert their stare and like hurried past us and i was like okay <laughs> i think that's a compliment to your makeup job isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah so um you know it was it was really it was one of those things where at first you know like i said you know the title of the movie kind of you know was goofy and stuff but after just being on set and being around everything and and like getting what's going on i was like well this is something i i really hope like people watch this you know and and then when I finally did get to see it, I, I, it was one of those films where I look back and I'm like, God, thank God I was a part of this because this film has so much heart, so much love. And, uh, and you know, there's such a deep story there and, and, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's really good, you know, and, and Jake's first movie and stuff like that. It was just, yeah. I mean, everybody, everybody was so wonderful and it was, yeah, it was just amazing. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. 
you can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. If you find yourself listening to your favorite podcast and wondering what microphone they use or how they do their editing, or if you watch a YouTube video and you wonder, what camera is that? Or going one step further, if you're watching Twitch and you're wondering how your favorite Twitch streamer built their rig and if you can do the same, then Toys and Tech of the Trade is for you. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series where we sit down with content creators, entrepreneurs, and discuss the gadgets and gear that they use to create their content and run their businesses. We use toys in a broad sense, meaning the stuff that just puts a smile on your face, whether it's action figures to something a little bit more complex like musical instruments, cars. You'd be surprised what people consider their toys. Toys and Tech of the Trade can be found on all major podcast providers, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and of course, Spotify. Feel free to visit us at RageWorksNetwork.com to check us out. We now return to Trek Untold. So Thomas, let's go ahead and start talking some Trek now. How did you end up working on Star Trek Next Generation? Ah, okay, well, um, gosh, um... Because of Buffy, I got in the union and uh, I just paid my dues and, uh, you know, I was in. And so um, I I was in between, you know, living in L.A. and, you know, living out where I live now uh, in the middle of nowhere. And um, I was on my way home um, and I was a good, I don't know, um, hour outside of L.A. And I got a I got a page. And, you know, once again, kids now don't know what pagers are. Uh, Ah, yes, pagers. Yes. Pagers Um, and beepers. They were like the worst thing on the planet. And um, it it was like literally having a dog call on or something. Um, I pulled off um, and uh, there was like, you know, this shop. They had, you know, a phone. And and I called the number and I didn't recognize it It was a uh, a 213 number. And so it was L.A. And I called and I, I got this really pleasant, lovely lady by the name of Jeannie. And he's like, hi, uh, 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 I'm, I'm returning this uh, page. And, and, and she's like, hello, uh, this is Jeannie with the Star Trek makeup uh, department and um, uh, Michael Westmore's office. And I'm like, right then, I, I just kind of froze and I got a lump in my throat. And I was like, oh, God. You know, and, and she's like, are you available to come in this afternoon? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God. And she's like, hang on a second. <clears throat> and she put her hand over the mouthpiece and she's mumbling something to, to Mike. And uh, she gets back on. And she goes, are you available to come in tomorrow morning? And and I'm like, yes. <laughs> I didn't even really think. I was just like, yes. <laughs> you know, and and um, 
I'm like, what do I need to bring? And da, 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 da. And anyway, and, and, uh, so I, I, I got home and I packed, packed up everything I had. And I, I, I was, I mean, I was sweating. I was like, I was miserable. I was like, and I, I go in and, you know, I go through the gate and, you know, and I, I, I trying to, I'm trying to be cool, but I, inside I'm dying. I'm like ready to vomit, you know? And, and, uh, we're on this stage and, you know, I'm asking where, you know, the stages and I get there and I, I set up and luckily there's this guy that I know and, and, um, he's setting up next to me and he's a wreck. He's scared and nervous. And I think this is his first time on Star Trek as well. <laughs> and we are just doing Bajorans. And I mean, for me, who's already done prosthetic work prior to, you know, coming into Star Trek, I was like, okay, it's just, simple this is a really simple makeup and and so um you know and i watched this show and i know what a bajoran looks like and and uh and and so yeah it, it just it, it went really easy and smooth and um you know I, I i got more calls actually my first day wasn't on next gen it ended up being on on ds9 um and then you know um i would say i was on for a couple weeks on uh ds9 moved back to la and then um, next thing you know, I, I finally, you know, got to go over on, uh, uh, Star Trek and, um, I can't remember which was my first, I think it was the one with Worf's half brother or stepbrother. Um, and he was trying to evacuate these aliens off a planet or something. And they had like this kind of scarab beetle looking nose thing, like lump on their nose. And, uh, and that was so episode, yeah. uh, from season seven homeward with Paul Servino. Okay. Uh, then. Let's see. Um, it, yeah, I think that, um, no, it, it had to be something before that then. So I, I can't remember what episode it was. Oh gosh. But it, it, it was, it, it was, um, late season six then. Um, and I can't remember, you would think I would remember, but it's been forever. So, <laughs> um, but, um, it, it just, you end up bouncing back and forth on those shows. Um, and, and it all becomes kind of a big blur. <clears throat> kind of like when the enterprise like warp drives, everything just kind of blurs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good allegory. And, and, you know, it just, after a while, it's like, okay, it's a Boolean. Oh, okay. It's, <laughs> it's a Cardassian. It's, you know, and, and, you know, it's like you, you just kind of get it, <laughs> you know, after a while. But, yeah. And yeah. at one point uh, you were working on Deep Space Nine, Next Gen and Generations also, right? Yes. Yeah. That was, that was crazy. Like I would be hired you know, for one show, like, you know, I, I, you know, like the higher would be for either DS nine or next gen or, or, uh, generations. And I would come in and we would have spillover. Um, and, and, uh, you know, it's just pretty much like everyone was working and it was one of those times also there was, you know, other shows going on in, in LA, there was, uh, uh, I believe Buffy was, uh, just started up and, uh, there was, oh gosh, uh, Babylon five, I believe was going and there was, you know, there was, so everyone was working, you know? And so there was, there wasn't a lot of people to pull, you know, from the union. Um, and, and, uh, so basically, you know, I would be doing sideburns on Starfleet guys for, um, uh, generations. And then, um, doing, uh, a bunch of, uh, post-apocalyptic survivors for the court of Q, um, for next gen. And then 
I would I would like have like some big head alien to do for for um, DS9. And I mean, it would be like a, a flood of people coming in, plus trying to get things prepped and, you know, painted, you know, for for uh, uh, DS9 and and, uh, you know, getting stuff prepped for uh, uh, generations. In fact, um, the scar. Um, Mike, Mike had me do uh, uh, the uh, scar material this um, we we have nicknames for it, like vines and stuff, but no one's really going to know what that is. It's basically, um, a vinyl resin, um, uh, but for, um, uh, Malcolm McDowell's, uh, scar and, and everything. So, you know, I was, you know, kind of busy doing that. And, and then like, um, Mike, Mike came to me to run some stuff at home. I, I was actually running some pieces at home for like the dead Romulan and, uh, you know, uh, that was supposed to be a one-off. He was only supposed to shoot one day. He ended up shooting two days. Um, and I can't remember that gentleman's name, the nicest guy. Um, he sent me a thank you letter and Mike, uh, a thank you letter, um, which was really unusual and wonderful. Every once in a while you have an actor do that. And, and, uh, he was the sweetest guy. Um, uh, but the first day did the makeup on him and, and, uh, he, uh, he sat around all day and they never got to a scene and then they wrapped him and they're like, you're back tomorrow, you know? Um, and so I had to come back the next day and do it all over again. And about four hours after the makeup was done, they shot him and it was like, boom, boom, boom. And he was out of there. And I was like, Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> I'm like, can I go home now? <laughs> no. I'm like, Damn. you know, but yeah. It's funny you mentioned the sideburns because I was watching another interview you did recently and you talked about how sideburns are probably one of the things that you did the most. And surprisingly, they weren't actually cut into people's heads. They were all makeup. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, for for some actors and stuff like that who could grow them, you know, those those, um, you know, like those were, you know, um, the way they, you know, had their hair cut and stuff. But um, it, for the uh, majority, they were either lace pieces or they were hand laid. Um, and, and, um, only certain people, you know, would get like handmade lace eyebrows or not eyebrows, but, uh, sideburns and, uh, the rest of them were more laid, you know, um, and, and I know, uh, for like deep, deep background, uh, I've heard stories that, you know, they were just penciled on and, uh, I, I, I never did that. I mean, you know, I can lay hair well, especially back then I, I could I could do them very quickly. So, you know. All right. So let's get into the nitty gritty of what it is you would do as a makeup artist and what the process is to, especially on a Trek show, to make someone into an alien. And in this case, I want to actually use an example of Roxanne Dawson from, let's say, Unimatrix Zero when she was in Borg makeup. And not saying you worked on this character or didn't, but I just want to use this type of person as an example. Um, so okay. the reason being is because we talked to Michael Moore a few weeks back about prop making. He talked about the collaboration between departments to make things happen. And so I wanted to bring a Borg into this equation to see if there's any back and forth between departments because the Borg has all these electronic pieces while the Klingon has got all the ridges and all that kind of stuff. So um, right. you know. um, so let's start at the very beginning oh. with this process. Like, Does it start with the script? Is there an illustration or a concept given to you first? And where do you guys go from there? Well, movie Borgs, uh, the introduction of the movie Borgs, um, Mike had to come up with designs and it was really very specific it was like they have to be reminiscent of the original tv boards but they have to be like 
super advanced. They have to be streamlined, you know, and, and terror, terrible, terrifying. You know, they had to have, um, an ominous look about them, uh, that would read on a big screen. So Mike, Mike was designing these and, um, uh, he brought in Scott Wheeler and then, um, uh, the electronics were done by, uh, Mike Westmore Jr. Um, and, uh, um, the suits were actually farmed out to Todd Masters, uh, shop. And, and so like this effect shop outside of Paramount actually had to cast everyone, you know, and, and build the suits and the suits, um, were amazing. Um, and then there was like a suit crew and they were separate from the standard wardrobe we had on the film. Um, and, and they were just involved with the electronics and the, uh, you know, uh, putting the suits on actors and, um, maintaining them because things, things would break. And, uh, the, yeah, it was, it, yeah, it was rough, <laughs> especially when boards had to take and do stunts and things. Um, but, uh, so it was, a. uh, it was total, totally um, uh, a group effort to get a Borg, um, you know, just put together and on screen. Um, kind of like the Jemadar. Um, the Jemadar were uh, wardrobe, makeup, and special effects uh, uh, collaboration, once again, because of the, that tube going into the neck that right. had to pump white. Um, Precious and, white. And, yeah, and it was like this, I forgot exactly how it was done. Uh, because I talked to our special effects guys uh, about it, and it was just, I'm like, damn, that's really smart. Um, because it looked like it was actually pumping stuff up, but it was basically just kind of bubbling the liquid up to a point, and that's as far as it went. And as far as any of that went, that that had to be attached by the special effects people because that was their rigging, and and um, with with uh, wardrobe coming in and accommodating, you know. Uh, so I mean, those 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 kind of makeups i mean they you know they were a big deal because you had to maintain all of those different things and you know it was like battery operated and so like they had to be switched off in between scenes and sometimes the tube would come out and you know that's not good you know um so yeah it was yeah it, different things would malfunction <laughs> you know and 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 we all had to be, you know, all hands on deck for it. So can you kind of walk us through then what you do to make, let's say, again, a Klingon, I was using it before, Roxanne as boring, but let's say a Klingon or a Jem'Hadar. What's the process to get an actor from, you know, looking like a normal everyday person you see on the street to getting them to look like a Klingon with Borg makeup or a Jem'Hadar soldier? Well, I remember uh, my, um, handing over uh, Martok to me. Like, I got to establish Martok. Uh, during the Dominion Wars or whatever, uh, somebody else took over because I was on something else. But um, uh, like the first time you saw like Martok, that that was me. And so um, uh, we had uh, the actor come in and um, get casted, and then his teeth casted, and and prosthetics were built, um, and then um, you know hair hair pieces were. Uh, picked out, uh, for, for the wig. And so that's, you know, the, the, uh, hair department and then, um, uh, like the eyebrows and facial hair, um, I, I had come, uh, come up with, and then like, you know, the placement of the scar and kind of like develop the character. And, and so, um, our actor would come in and this was pretty much like any prosthetic kind of character. Um, uh, we have these black t-shirts 
with um they looked like something from Flashdance, like the um arms uh were cut off the, the sleeves were cut off and then uh the neck would usually be opened up a bit too and so your actor you know, wouldn't just be shirtless you know they would come in and uh this black t-shirt and um maybe part of the wardrobe on you know um and then uh we would do um you know the forehead and nose and whatever other you know pieces were needed and then they would go off and see hair and um hair would attach the wigs and stuff then they would come back to us um after uh wardrobe uh for like the final stuff like eyebrows and mustache you know you'd have a klingon who was all done but they wouldn't have facial hair and eyebrows you know like it just yeah it was weird seeing like klingons without the facial hair but anyway <laughs> um uh you know and that that pretty much was you know good for like you know uh the asparagus head uh character i i i don't even remember the name of that that race of alien but you know the, the guy would come in uh in a black t-shirt and uh um you know the jimadars same thing uh cardassians the cardassians especially like the t-shirts had to have like the neck area really widened because of those big neck appliances now did you also work on the deep space nine episode blood oath uh yes yes Okay, that's like one of my favorite episodes. It's got like all the original Klingons back in action. Can you tell us a little bit about working on that episode and especially being around those original cast members and getting to do the makeup with them? Well, um, it, it was it was a huge honor and it was scary because, like you know, um, a couple of these actors, I guess you know, hadn't done anything in a while and and uh, you know, and they're they're they were just you know icons and and I remember being in. Uh, um, the lab uh, with Gil Mosco and Hank Eads and um, uh, 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 William Campbell, um, uh, who, oh gosh, I can't, um, what was his name? Um, Koloth? Uh, oh gosh. Oh yeah, there was Koloth, there's Kor, there's Kang, there's <laughs> all sorts of crazy clown uh, names of Ks. Uh, yes, the, um, uh, he was from uh, Trouble with Tribbles and uh, uh, he, um, he was there talking with us and we were doing teeth casts and just kind of reminiscing and, you know, listening to his stories and, and, uh, John Calicos was there and, uh, um, and, and then Michael and Sarah came in and it was like, you know, he, he just a booming personality, like out of all three of them, he had like this really like strong presence and, and, you know, like. Um, you know, we're like, you know, John was just laid back and, and, um, uh, William Campbell was funny. He was like, like that sweet, funny uncle that, you know, you would, you know, like sit and listen to stories, you know, and, and, you know, then, you know, Michael and Sarah comes in, you know, with his booming voice and, you know, it's like, yeah, it was, it was, it was really, you know, kind of, you know, we were all kind of like taken back it's like oh god you know <laughs> you know he is a klingon and and uh but yeah um it was a it was a crazy episode uh with the albino my buddy mike smithson designed that and and um applied it um and um uh we had to have a stunt double and he went to mike westmore and said i want super not doing the stunt double i want you know and and because you know i i feel tom can duplicate what i'm doing you know, it's a very specific paint job that I'm doing. And I was, and then when Mike Westmore told me that, I, I was just like, wow, just blown away. I thought that was the 
nicest compliment because I look up to Mike Smithson. He's probably one of the best artists in our industry. And um, his his <clears throat> his paint jobs are are mind-blowingly good. His sculptures are mind-blowingly good. I mean, he's just a phenomenal artist. And and to to like have to, you know, replicate what he was doing and follow follow his lead um was an honor and it was scary you know i was i remember now i was young i was like one of the youngest people to get on star trek at that time i'm i'm sure there's younger people now since but i mean i i was just in the union and you know i just didn't want to screw up um <laughs> i was i always had that in my head it's like don't screw up don't screw up this is a big deal you know and and uh and and also you know just honoring star trek you know, and, and, uh, everything that's went before. And, and so I, I, I guess I built up a pressure for myself, but you know, it's, it, it, it you know, it, it helped me, I guess, you know, do the best I could and, and turn out some really good makeups over the years. Yeah. And that, that episode in particular is a real standout to me just because of all the Cleons and how unique a lot of them look in particular. But, uh, let's jump ahead now to the episode Distant Voices from D Space Nine, which you and the team you, were, you worked with on that one got the Emmy for. Right. And, uh, in, in particular, that was, uh, notable because it had a lot of age makeup on Alexander Siddig. Yes. Which you'd also do later again in The Visitor. Yes. Uh, which you guys are again nominated for that one. Yes. So I guess Siddig yeah. is like the good luck charm for that. But, uh, talk to us about working uh -huh. with Alexander and how you guys age up a character. It's, it's, it's funny. Like, it, 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 yeah, I'm so used to just saying Sadig, but like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yes. Um, first of all, you know, we'd, we'd already been working together and stuff like that. And he's probably one of the sweetest guys you'd also, you know, want to work with, like pretty much all our actors, you know, were great. I, I don't, you know, I don't think I ever, you know, felt like there was any like weird rift or anything. Everyone was amazing. It was like family. You know, um, I, I worked with Marina Sirtis um, uh, a couple of years ago, and, and we were talking about the family feel of the show and how hard it is for other shows. Like, you know, like you, you know, a lot of them never get that family feel. And it was definitely like family on track. And um, but um, uh, Alexander was uh, amazing. Uh, he he. Um, you know, he went through a lot, you know, with that, you know, it was a lot of work, you know, not just putting up with the prosthetics, but, you know becoming old, you know, like, you know, mentally becoming old and, and, you know, being that character and, uh, and, uh, not, not overdoing it not being, you know, like cheesy about it. And, and, and I think, you know, he just, he, he, he was so fluid. He, he made it work so well, you know, I mean, if you had a bad acting performance, you know, the makeup would have suffered, you know, and, and, uh, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a three person job. It was, a um, Camille Calve and Scott Wheeler. And then Scott, you know, he was over, he was working on Voyager at the time. So he en ended up back on Voyager. Um, and so, um, some of the stuff, uh, Camille and I had to handle. And, um, uh, then, um, uh, with the next time, um, we had to do age makeup. Um, I got to kind of do it on my own, which was great, you know, and, and once again, Alexander was just a wonderful person to have sitting in your chair for hours. I mean, great personality, great stories, um, just a beautiful human being. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was an honor, you know, it just, and then, you know, being nominated for an Emmy, like I, I was like blown away. I'm like, wow, mm. this, this is crazy, you know? And, and then, 
Um, I buggered off on a movie for a while. Um, and then I left that film because, um, uh, I just, um, I, I kind of like butted heads with the, uh, uh, first AD who was, um, insulting and rude. Um, and, um, it, it, it just became ugly. And I was like, I don't need to be treated this way anyway. Um, uh, I'm not going to mention the film, but Rutger Hauer was in it and, um, you know, Rutger and I had already worked together as you know. Um, and so, uh, anyway, uh, I ended up coming back to Star Trek and, you know, that's when I found out it was nominated and, and I was like, Whoa, and, and like the whole Emmy thing, it was just like, what do I wear? You know, it's like, and, and, and um, it's a good you know, problem I, to have, you know, and it, it's just odd because like, I, I'm just out there. I'm a little different than like your average, like, you know, like company man. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm an artist, you know, I c- came from that kind of background and like, kind of like, a punk artist and I, you know, hung out with the, in the LA punk scene. And like a lot of the people I worked with back then were really straight lace. Like it's funny now looking in the business that, you know, everyone with their piercings and tattoos and stuff. I'm like, okay, I remember getting like some shit talk about my, my ear piercings and my tattoos, you know, back then. And I, I mean, I, I only had one visible tattoo at that time, you know, and, and, um, my ears were pierced and I had funky hair and I mean, <laughs> like, seriously, yeah, some people, you know, made some, you know, asinine comments and stuff. And I'm like, I, I've heard them all my life. I don't really care, you know, <laughs> six and stone. But, uh, anyway, so, um, I, I ended up getting this at the time. Once again, you have to remember the time this was. Um, like sarongs and like, you know, man, man skirts, you know, were really popular. And, and I, I, I just, I found this great Donna Karen sarong and, um, uh, this really nice, uh, like Nehru collar coat to go with it. And I, you know, I had a pair of biker boots and, and, uh, which you really couldn't see because of this sarong hanging down. And anyway, so I'm like fashion forward. I'm like doing something like, you know, like from a Gautier show and, and, uh, because it's a big deal. It's the Emmys, right? This one friend of mine who, who has since passed Mark Dussant, who I love dearly and respect with all my heart. Um, this man, I mean, he, he goes back to like, you know, like the second count Yorga movie and like, you know, like Mannix and like old television series and stuff. Anyway, Mark Dussant, um, said, Tom, you're not going to wear a dress, you know, to, to the Emmys. And I'm like, it's not a dress, you know? And I was explaining, he's like, you know, he goes, you're not in Sri Lanka. And I'm like, I know, but it's like, this is the fashion right now. He's like, I will, I will buy you a suit. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's like after work, let's go buy you a suit. And I'm like, no, I already bought this. I already spent money. And he's like, he's just looking at me like, why are you going to do this? And I'm like, because, you know, we're makeup artists, we're fashion, you know, and, and this and that. Anyway, so, I, you know, we we show up and people are just kind of like shaking their heads. Other people are like, that's awesome, you know. And some wardrobe people from other shows are like, that's beautiful. And I'm like, it's Donna Karen. And they're like, oh, my God, you know. And so it, it that validated it. And anyway, <laughs> so uh, uh, when they announced the winner, I, I kind of went blank. There was a big like blank spot from that and being on stage with Cindy Lauper. Um, and I'm like, Oh my God. And who, 
who better to you know present our Emmy, you know, than Cindy Lauper and me and in a, a sarong, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and then um, you know we go backstage downstairs, get all the publicity photos, whatever, and then we head back up. And as I, we're walking through the auditorium as a group, we're elated, we're all smiles, and all of a sudden um, I hear my name really loud, and this guy comes rushing me grabs me literally off my feet and swings me around. And I, I'm like, who is this? And I look and it's Paul Rubens. He's like, Tom, congratulations. I'm so proud of you. And I'm like, Paul, oh my God, I didn't know you were going to be here tonight. <laughs> and, and, and everyone's like looking at me like he knows Pee Wee Herman. And I'm like, we work together. you know. <laughs> and it was just, but yeah, it was like a, it was, it, it was such a star studded night. I mean, everybody, you know, you know, from, like a lot of old comedy shows were there, you know, presenting and, and, uh, there was a lot of, you know, Rosemary Clooney was there. I was like, geez, you know, it was, it was really an awesome experience. And, uh, I was beside myself. I, I mean, you know, it was just the wildest, you know, moment, like winning that, that Emmy, you know, it was like, wow, you know, and yeah, I, I don't know what else to say. It was, it was a big, scary, wonderful experience. <laughs> that sounds like a great time. And now you have to show photos of that as well. So your homework is to put up pictures of the Buffy crew jackets and now you in a sarong at the Emmys. Oh, God. Sadly, I think there's only one picture from the Hollywood Reporter of that, which is sad. All right, I'm going to uh, that down then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Since you are part of the behind-the-scenes crew, you're privy to a lot of things that fans like myself don't ever get to see. And uh, what I'm asking about is test makeups. And you know, I'm kind of curious if you haven't worked on so many different species. Can you maybe describe any test makeups for certain aliens that we viewers might know that didn't quite make the cut to what we saw on TV? Um, well, I mean, some of them before they were even tested were sculptures. And I just know that, um, oh gosh, uh, like we would do like sculptures to kind of like come up with ideas, you know, and, and, um, uh, they would get X'd, you know, it was like, no, 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 no. Uh, yes. Um, and you know, maybe elements of other things, you know, thrown in, you know, to, to get the final design, but I can't remember any, anything really super specific. You know what? Oh, now here's one. Um, it was, uh, that next generation episode with the mummified crew of, uh, Riker's old ship that, like half phased in like Philadelphia experiment half phased into an asteroid. Does uh, that, yeah. yeah, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but I know, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Oh gosh. It was like, okay. Um, so, you know, we did some tests and we had to take them over to Rick Berman's office and it was like, it was weird. Like going there with, you know, Mike Westmore. I mean, he's the Michael Westmore. It's like, you know, he's, he's a, big shot you know it's like he's you know high roller he's he's like the guy and it's like you know he's he's going to you know he's going with us over to uh, rick berman's office and you know he you know you could tell that there was a, a distinct you know different attitude you know because he's now going to you know the big shot guy <laughs> you know this is you know rick berman and and um you know we we had to go and present and you know he he was just very mellow. You know, he just sat there and he kind of looked at things and he's like, okay, yeah, that's good. Um, you know, and it was like, okay. 
it was, it, it was, yeah, it was definitely one of those kind of, um, situations. Um, I know, um, personally I, I, I don't remember like any specific things that were completely not used. Um, like I know that there were like, like some tests that I wasn't involved uh, with, you know, for like the board makeups and stuff, you know, and they went through a lot of changes uh, to get what, what they ended up being. Um, yeah. I, I can't think of any major thing that was like, no, no, we don't like that at all. It's probably for the best. Otherwise I think CBS yeah. will come knocking on our door to break our thumbs. So, right. <laughs> yeah. So of all the different species of aliens that you worked on, what was your favorite makeup to do? Um, well, I've always had a thing for Klingons and I became Klingon guy. Um, back then I spoke a little Klingon. Um, I knew a lot more about, you know, uh, the Klingon empire. I, I knew about the ships. I mean, I still kind of sort of do, but you know, not really. Um, it just, <laughs> I, I, um, one of my hobbies is putting together model ships and I always loved the Klingon ships because they were they were beaten up, you know, they weren't like all like, you know, pristine, like the enterprise, you know, the enterprise is like, you know, look so art deco and perfect. <laughs> you know, I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> you know, it's like X-wing fighters versus tie fighters. It's like, yeah, give me, give me a beaten up X-wing or, a, you know, beaten up millennium Falcon or, you know, a rusted out slave one. But, you know, it's like, you know, that, that's the way I feel about like Klingon ships, you know, they're just perfect, you know, with their, their, you know, insignias and their, you know, the, the, the paint job of the, the bird, you know, the bird wings of the, you know, bird of prey. And, yep. you know, just, they're, they're just, they're good. And they're, they're mean looking, they're mean looking ships. And so, you know, I, I remember like some of the, you know, uh, Klingon actors would, you know, kind of quiz me about, you know, the Klingon society and, you know, how, you know, what, you know, the Klingons, you know, their, their system and, and like their, you know, vehicles and, you know, uh, you know, like, what station is which and you know i used to know all that but anyway uh, <laughs> anyway i'm gonna ask a, i'm gonna ask a loaded question here what do you think about the klingon makeup on discovery uh, <laughs> um i think the makeup crew you know is great i mean you know it's great makeup crew and but it's it's just i th i think that so much stuff gets over designed and and like you know, I, I'm okay with it, I guess, but you know, this is going to sound really not nice, but I, I don't like, I don't see the functionality of, of things now. Like things are over designed, like their wardrobe, like their, their armor is so busy. It's like, it's not game of Thrones kids, you know, it's <laughs> like, but like, you know, the makeups kind of remind you of some of the stuff that Barney Berman designed for the reboot of uh, Star Trek that you never saw because like that whole Klingon thing was cut <laughs> the uh, JJ um, Star Trek. So the reboot, um, but they did all this Klingon stuff and, and most of them had helmets on. And uh, you know, it was like when, when uh, the Romulan guy uh, ended up being captured by the Klingons or something. Anyway, you never see those makeups except like on the special edition Blu-ray or whatever, but you know, they're more, they're more beastie looking, you know? And uh, you know, like, I think I, I come from the Gene Roddenberry school of Star Trek and I, I, I really, you know, um, it's, it's about it, uh, it, Star Trek to me is, is about morality and, and stuff and, and like, um, the commonality of things or whatever. And like the established 
the kind of the established stuff. And I think we veered a lot of it's kind of like really far away from it just, you know, because we have the technology to like go above and beyond and go crazy with designs and whatever. But yeah, I'm, you know, giving you way too long of an explanation, but <clears throat> no, nah, you know, just they're, they're a bit beastie, you know, I pretty agree with you with your statement on, on the approach to Klingons. I kind of agree with that. And it seems like as much as I do like them, it's also like they're kind of trying to show off what they can do more so than have that realism that kind of got with all the other series. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, I think sometimes things can be overdone just, just you know, because you can now. And and yeah. uh, it, it's 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 like, you know, this was good, but let's throw another set of arms on something or whatever. It's, you know, and, and it's weird because like on Enterprise, um, um, I, I had kind of a, a Klingon issue there, you know, and, and uh, th- there was that one episode where you had the Klingon running, you know, into like a grain silo or something. God, it's been years since I saw that episode. But, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, at that time, Klingons should have still, you know, had their, you know, Mongolian humanoid look, you know, and everything. And, and you know, with tri- um, Trials and Tribulations, you know, when we went back in time, you know, and Worf had to disguise himself. It was like, yeah, there's, you know, that whole unspoken Klingon thing. Why, why, why did Klingons just look, you know, like, like, you know, <laughs> like raiding Mongols or something, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's weird. It's so, yeah. So Thomas, what was the worst day you ever had working on Star Trek where things just didn't work right for you at all? I have two. <laughs> oh boy. This is good. Um, we, we were working really, really ridiculous hours. Like I was getting maybe four hours of sleep and, you know, I was just living on the other side of town. I was living in, you know, like Beverly Hills, uh, West Hollywood border and coming in at like four in the morning and working until seven at night, you know, um, eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night, you know, 10 o'clock at night. And as the week progressed and anyway, I was sculpting, uh, upstairs and I literally just fell asleep. I was sitting down, you know, at, you know, the, the counter with my sculpture and my head just went down onto the counter. And then all of a sudden I hear this voice and I realized it's my boss. And I, I snapped, <laughs> snapped to attention and like, Oh God, I hope he didn't see me. And he's like, Oh no, that's fine. You didn't need to get up. And I'm like, ah, I'm like, I thought for sure I was fired. I, I was like, <laughs> And, you know, it's it just, I don't know if I was that nervous, but like, because Mike wasn't like that. I mean, he wasn't like, you know, you're fired, you know, it, anyway, he, he was so wonderful. And, and he, he actually said, um, take one of those sound blankets underneath there and just kind of crawl underneath there and go to sleep. He's like, I've had to take naps too. And I'm like, no, 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 no. He's like, no, it's fine. I'm like, I'll, I'll just go get myself a coffee, you know? And it, <laughs> I mean, I honestly, you know, I, I just, I felt so horrible about it because you know this is you know this is a high profile show and people you know there are so many people who would you know kill to to be a part of this you know and here i am falling asleep you know in my sculpture and uh the other time i was sick like 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 crazy sick i had like i don't know i shouldn't have went into work but um you know i couldn't call off and and we were shooting on location um, off the, uh, 14 here in California. And, uh, it's very deserty and it was like a mining facility. I guess all alien planets are mining facilities. More or less. Uh, <laughs> Unless they're filmed in Canada, then they're all forests. 
exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so true. Um, <laughs> but um, we're out there and, you know, it, it's hot right now. I mean, it's probably 105 degrees outside. Um, and it was, it was like, I think it got up to like 102. Plus, I'm running a fever and we're doing Cardassians. And what were the other aliens? Oh my gosh. I think it was, no, I think it was just Cardassians. And then, um, I can't remember all, um, uh, all our main cast. I want to say column was there maybe. Uh, anyway, Oh, is this the episode where, this- uh, where Akira and O'Brien go to liberate a Bajoran camp or something? Um, gosh, I, you know, I, I was delirious with fever. Yeah, um, good point. <laughs> it, it, yeah. There was this, there was a big spaceship crashed into the side of this mine facility, like this mining area, right? They built this big ship. And when I was driving, I saw it and I'm like, holy crap, if anyone's driving on the 14 and looked over, they're, they're, they're going to go off the road. It's like, there's a freaking spaceship crashed into the side <laughs> of the mountain here. <clears throat> and it looked, I mean, it was so real. It was like, whoa, you know, and it, it wasn't CGI. It was a real physical vehicle, like crashed into the site. It was beautiful. It was amazing to see that. And uh, uh, creepy. All at the same time, it's like, ooh, Roswell. But anyway, um, I just remember doing doing my couple makeups and trying to sit out the day. And I got my, I got eight hours. And, and I'm, you know, I'm like, I am so sick. And everyone's like, well, yeah, you are. You need to go home. So I finally got to go home and just driving. I, I mean, I don't even know how I got home. It was, you know, the great bird of the galaxy was smiling down on me. I, I mean, <laughs> so yeah, it, yeah, that, that was probably one of those, those days, you know, it, it's de- definitely not an easy, easy day. So what was the most important lesson that you learned during all of your time working with Michael Westmore? Gosh, there's so many, but like one, one thing in particular kind of comes to mind is you know, I, I asked him, how is it you can maintain such an even keel, like throughout all the crap that's going on? And, and, and like, you know, it, it just, you know, with the hours and this and that. And, and he goes, well, I learned a long time ago, don't bring work home with you and don't bring home to work with you. Mm, that's probably like one of the most beautiful things. And that can, you know, like translate you know, across the board to any job, you know, Red while back, you had created your own special effects makeup line. Do you still run that business? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, Thomas Supernaut creations. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a prosthetic paint. Uh, it was used on star Trek for a, a ton of characters over the years. Um, gosh, um, it was around 89 when I first kind of started, you know, formulating everything. And then, uh, over the years it's changed a bit and improved. And, um, uh, you know, it just, you know, people around the world, uh, have used it and, uh, you know, it was used on Lord of the Rings, um, trilogy. It was, uh, used on the line, the witch in the wardrobe, um, Prince Caspian, um, like so much stuff that can be is used. Some of the artists on the Grinch who stole Christmas used it. I mean, I used my, my product on, you know, on my actor, uh, for, for the Grinch, you know, um, but yeah, yeah, it's, and it's, it's in schools and shops all over the world. So for folks who don't really understand the differences between paints, what makes the stuff that you produce better than other products? Well, um, it's, it's based off of the theory um, that Dick Smith came up with. It's a combination of acrylic paint and, and um, uh, this 
uh, product called Prosate. It's a, an acrylic adhesive, uh, medical adhesive. And, and, you know, early on, that's all we used back in the eighties, you know, and, and it was Dick's formula. He used it on the hunger on David Bowie. It's gotta be good. And, um, so, um, over the years of using it, I, 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 I felt that it, it wasn't pigmented enough. It, it needed, uh, it, it, it would go kind of leathery and, and like, like, you know, when you drug it from the prosthetic onto the skin, it would crinkle up and, you know, kind of like look funny on camera and in real life. So it was more plasticky and less painty. Right. And, and so it was, yeah, very filmy, you know? And, and so, um, I, uh, I, I thought, well, you know, what makes a better like professional makeup? Okay. Like you've got your over the counter stuff that, you know, is like super expensive that has very little pigment. And then you have like moderately priced professional makeup, like RCMA, uh, which is highly pigmented and goes a long way and, you know, has great coverage. And I'm like, ah, pigment, how do we, you know, up the pigment? And then I'm like cosmetic pigment. Okay. So, you know, I started messing around with that different, like, um, surfactants and, and, and matting agents. And, and, uh, um, you know, once again, I, I, I came from the, you know, the, the film world, you know, with my grandfather, you know, um, and, you know, back when he started, I mean, a lot of things that they, they had to mix from hand, you know, like, you know, pigment into a solution and, and, uh, you know, it just, it all just, all that knowledge kind of like, you know, flooded in and I'm like, okay, this is, you know, this is the direction I need to go. And that's, that's how I came up with my non-acrylic paint, prosthetic paint, you know, and, and, uh, you know, people still call it PAX, you know, which was the Dick Smith product, um, or, or formula, I should say that he came up with, but it's not, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's my formulation and, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, um, it, it's, it's one of those things, you know, once again, coming from that eighties time, you know, when there, you couldn't just go to a shop and buy stuff. Um, you, you had to make stuff, you know, you had to comp compound things or go to, uh, one of these companies that supply, you know, urethanes and, and whatever, and say, Hey, I need this compounded. Um, RCMA, for instance, um, they're a, um, a makeup company that's been around for many, many, many years. And, um, I'm friends with them. They're really good people. And, um, years ago, uh, here's, here's a, uh, Fred Phillips story. Um, when they were doing Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, he went to, um, uh, Vincent Kehoe, uh, and, and, and had the Klingon colors made and they're called ST1, ST2 and ST3. And, um, over the years, you know, um, LN1, uh, which stands for Leonard Nimoy one. So those are Star Trek colors, uh, that were made, um, um, you know, for, for, uh, films and television, uh, by this company RCMA. And, and so I, 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 that's kind of, you know, like what I came up, you know, with my, my line was to come up with things that were specific and, and, you know, that's, you know, once again, going back to, you know, it wasn't available. You had to make it yourself, you know? And so for folks out there who are interested in doing makeup and want to get some of your stuff, how can they find it? 
affects warehouse sales, um, sales product. Uh, they also sell my blood kits, uh, which are really, really good. Um, I was hoping there was more to that because the way you just said blood, I was like, oh, okay, can I get some of your blood too? Uh, yes, I, I, I've got a blood kit with three different types of blood. Uh, one uh, like regular venal, uh, one arterial, which is um, oxidized, um, and one that's this special kind of thick drying blood that <laughs> uh, turns into like a scab. It's great for dressing like, um, you know, like clothing and wardrobe and like bandages and um, people. Um, you can take a black coarse stipple sponge and, and like leave scratches, you know, like like pick some of the uh, this special thick blood up and scratch it across your arm or face and and um it looks like a rug you know a road burn or whatever and <laughs> that is uh, the coolest grossest thing we've ever talked about in this podcast <laughs> cool and three different uh types of gel blood uh that are are great for doing like two-dimensional um or three-dimensional excuse me three-dimensional um kind of wounds and stuff like you could do like quick gashes with with uh you know like the arterial and the regular gel blood um, also the um um you can like work it into the hair to look like you know bullet wounds or you know like wounds to the head and uh yeah it's um it's, so it's it's like you, you you get three of you know like like three different you get like three liquid three gel and so you get six you know a variety of six in this kit um and then uh there's a a shop called Mamie's um a beauty center it's in Burbank they sell um uh, my products and then um the new website uh or uh gosh um <laughs> the new website it's not up right now um but i can get back to you on that um so um it, we, we will be doing direct orders and things but everything's been rebranded and we're still trying to finish rebranding everything All right, awesome well yeah I'll make sure that our audience knows about where to find those paints and as we come towards the end of this interview here today uh, you know, I kind of want to reflect backwards on your origins in getting into this business because you had a pretty unique road here. You didn't do the traditional road of, you know, going to like Stan Winston Academy to learn this kind of stuff because it didn't really right. exist yet. So um, for anybody out there who wants to do makeup, special effects makeup or otherwise, what advice do you have for them to get into this business and be successful in it? Find really good instructors who've been around who, you know, can give you the, give you proper information. There's a lot of a lot of like flash information just because it looks cool doesn't mean that's accurate. Uh, you know, like there's a lot of YouTubers and things like that. Um, you know, I've been teaching since 89 and, um, we'll probably next year be starting up, um, on the East coast doing some teaching. Um, I, I do teach at Blanche McDonald, which I, I recommend as well. Um, they're in Vancouver, British Columbia. Neil Gorton school is probably one of the finest schools, but you have to go to, uh, the UK for that, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but uh, I think one of the things is what I have been getting, like the feedback I get is like, I'll have students who are in a seven week, eight week course who want to do like a Grinch costume. I'm like, okay, you've never sculpted before. There's no way in hell that you're going to be able to do that in the allotted time. It's like, you have to, you have to learn to crawl before you walk, before you run. And, and I don't want to see a half-assed job in your portfolio. You know, it's like, you, you know, it's like, once again, I go back to what I was told. It's like, learn things that you see every day, you know, and, and it may not be, you know, a big bloody vampire or a big monster of some sort, you know, with, you know, like teeth growing out of its face or something. It's, I want to see something I see every day, like an old person 
or you know a character makeup and stuff. So um, it's basically observing it, from life. Yes, uh, you know, these are things that if you get it right, no one's going to know. But if you get it wrong, it's going to stand out. You know, it's in and uh, you know like and stuff that's going to uh, help you get in. Like I I, I know a lot of people want to be on set and, and, and be doing like, you know, they, they want to be venial or something. And it's like, well, no, you have to work to get to that point, you know, and you have to be really good. And, and, and it's, you know, and, and that goes for like people who want to get into shops and stuff like that. It's like, I want to be lead sculptor. No, you're not going to get in being a lead sculptor right away. You know, you're going to have to work your way up. Um, and, and, uh, Unless somebody is really willing to take a chance and you're that outstanding. Um, but, you know, some of the stuff I also recommend is hair punching, learning how to punch hair, learning how to tie hair. To get really good at that, you know, shops are constantly looking for people to punch hair or tie hair. Um, because of all, you know, the fake heads, you know, like how many times uh, on a lot of these shows, once again, Game of Thrones and stuff, where you have like dummy, you know, bodies getting decapitated or set on fire or whatever um all that hair has to be punched in one at a time <laughs> you know ah. it's you know it, it's it seems tedious and a lot of work but it also will get you in the front door if you're good at it and and uh uh because there's there's only a handful of people doing that you know and and who you know kind of made a name for themselves you know with their speed and accuracy of doing it and and uh so yeah i you know um I recommend learning everything, you know, just like it, what was recommended to me. So Thomas, last question today. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Um, you know, it's, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the best thing I've asked all interview, apparently. <laughs> you get, a, you get a, uh, a free small drink and a small popcorn at uh, your local cinema. Uh, no, 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 that's not true. They, they really should, though. I mean, you know, I waltz in there with an Emmy. I should get something, right? Uh, anyway, um, best part of being part of the universe is Star Trek fans are freaking amazing. Um, probably the most kind, loving, like supportive group of people who really care. Like it's, it's odd. Like, you know, I'll meet like closet Star Trek fans who are in our industry and, you know, like. I'll be talking to somebody and then, you know, when the crowd kind of like thins out and it's just me and that person talking, they're like, you work on Star Trek. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it goes into like dilithium crystals and, and, you know, like warp drive and stuff. And I'm like, I, you know, okay. <laughs> it's like, but yeah, like, um, uh, Star Trek, you know, being part of the world is, is great because like, there's so many, you know, wonderful people who care about Star Trek and Gene's vision for a better utopian future where, you know, money and greed isn't a thing, you know, and, and people, people of all backgrounds get along and, and celebrate each other. And, you know, it's, it's not too hard to imagine that, you know, I mean, given a Philip K. Dick future or a Gene Roddenberry future. I'll take Gene Roddenberry's future any day. Absolutely. And so for folks who want to see more of Thomas's work, of course, you can follow him on Instagram, which is his name, Thomas S. Supernon at IG. I'm going to have a link, of course, in the show notes so that this way you make sure you don't misspell that name that I'm currently butchering with my mouth. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty great because it's, you know, basically food photos and 
photos of horrible, vicious, gory makeup. It's a real great contrast. I'm enjoying that. <laughs> so, Thomas, yeah, thank you so much today for being so generous with your time, your knowledge. Uh, this has been really great, really a lot of great stories, and hopefully we'll have you back here another time to tell some more Star Trek tales. Well, thank you so much because, you know, it's really an honor. I mean, it just, you know, I went into something that I really loved. I was just being being asked to work on Star Trek was was beyond a dream come true. I mean, you know, I grew up with it. It was such a huge part of my life. And to actually be a part of, you know, the actual show. And it, yeah, it just, and, and being asked to talk about it. It's, it's amazing that, you know, people, you know, care, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to know that you've done something that has affected people and hopefully in a positive way, like, you know, Gene's vision once again, and, and, you know, you asking me, reaching out to me to talk about Trek, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful and, and very thankful. Well, I'm grateful to you saying yes, because again, going back to what we said way at the beginning of this interview, that's the power of yes. I mean, you could have said no, but you, you said yes immediately. But, you know, I'm very, very happy we got to do this and uh, we got to connect. So, you know, thank you for, for everything you did here today. And of course, as always, with all of our guests, thank you for your contributions to the Star Trek universe. Thank you so much. Live long and prosper. So that was our discussion with Thomas. If you'd like to buy some of the products we mentioned today, you can go ahead and visit fxwarehouse.com. And that's the letter F and the letter X warehouse.com. We'll have links for that and a few other things we talked about today in the show notes. In the Deep Space Nine episode, Distant Voices, Alexander Siddig said in an interview with Star Trek Monthly that this episode was a massive challenge for him as an actor and had previously said that he needed to really prepare for it and become comfortable with the idea of being old. Michael Westmore explained the process behind his look once, saying they took a plaster cast of his face to sculpt the old age pieces for him. And when it came time to shoot the episode, it took the team about four hours each time to apply all of those elements. This also included aging his hands and neck in case they shot him from any angle that could expose those parts of him. While this episode received a lot of notoriety for the makeup work, this wasn't, of course, the first time at all that Star Trek employed age makeup in any of the episodes, and it certainly would not be the last. And that list includes episodes like The Next Generation's The Inner Light and All Good Things, Voyager's Before and After, and who could forget the episode from the original series, The Deadly Years. And it's quite curious looking back on those episodes from the 60s to where we are today just to see how much special effects makeup has really changed. Age makeup might not be the most interesting in a lot of ways compared to an alien, but it really is an art to make somebody realistically look like they're 60 years older than they actually are. And it's a real blast from the past to see how they handled that in 1966 versus what they did 30 years later in Deep Space Nine. Now, as for modern Trek, I'm still waiting for Star Trek Discovery to do some old-age makeup stuff. We kind of had some similar type things in an episode from Season 2 with Captain Pike, but spoiler alert, not going to tell you guys much about that one. But these days in special effects makeup, it seems to be way bigger to actually de-age someone than to make them older. So who knows what the future holds for the evolution of aging makeup. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. Please make sure you follow us on social media to see all of our memes and daily guest updates. And who knows what else, because you never know what pops up on our pages. All you have to do is look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you think about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. You can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. That's T-E-E spring.com. 
That includes shirts, stickers, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. But most importantly, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this show and give us a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. If you enjoy what we do here every week on this show, please give us a five-star rating and review. It's the best way to make new listeners discover this podcast and help us grow. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, would like to be booked on the show, or are interested in sponsoring us, email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. Once again, this has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.